Hi, I'm Linus, and welcome back to the Interintellect Hostcast. In this episode, I talked to Celeste Marcus about her upcoming salon on Chaim Soutin and how to separate the artist as an individual from his mythology. Celeste is the editor of the Liberty Journal and is currently writing the first English language biography of the painter Chaim Soutin. And now, my conversation with Celeste. Hi, Celeste. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So we're really excited for your upcoming salon uh, titled Excavating Man from Myth, Chaim Soutin and the Cultural Power of Apocrypha, uh, which is going to take place on Sunday, December 11th um, at 1.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, So to just get started, um, could you tell me who is Chaim Soutin and why are you writing the first English language biography of him? Uh, Chaim Soutin is a great artist. He is one of the greatest artists of the modern period, um, in my opinion, but I also, I consider it an objective fact. He lived in Paris in between the wars and, well, he was born in 1893 and he died in 1943. And uh, like 30 of those years, he was alive for 50 years, really 40 of those years, he lived in Paris, 35, let's say. He lived in Paris um, and he is, I think by any objective measure, an incredibly important artist because of his originality and also because of the influence that he had on subsequent great painters. Uh, There have been, there's actually one really excellent book that's just about the other artists that Soutine has influenced. Um, Probably the biggest name, well, maybe just in my mind, the biggest name is de Kooning. De Kooning was interviewed very late in his life and was asked who the painter was who influenced him most. And he said Soutine. Uh, so that might be the reason, like that interview with itself m- might be one of the reasons that Suchina is known at all in the United States. So why am I the one writing the biography of him? I cannot, it's still like a complete mystery to me and it's wonderful for me that there is no English language biography of Soutine. Um, There are other studies of him that have been published in English. And basically uh, once every five to 10 years, there's a pretty significant exhibition that has an accompanying catalog that'll have essays about Soutine's life and then essays about um, the paintings themselves. So there's been a lot of like really significant work that's been published on Soutine, just never a full-length biography. Um, so I guess that's like the official reason why I'm writing it, because I am a writer and I am also a painter. And it just occurred to me like uh, a year and a half ago that this was an opportunity that I should absolutely take advantage of. So it's really the official answer is that there isn't a biography and there needs to be one which is not the same, it's not the same answer as why do I want to write it? Um, And I guess that there are more personal reasons that I I want to write it, but like that sort of gives you an understanding of who Soutine was and and why I consider him of objective significance. I think it's super interesting that you you said uh, in these words that there needs to be an English biography of Soutine and I think that gets to my question of you know, how how you're approaching writing this biography. Um, so would love to hear about both you know, what that need is, like why does there need to be this biography, hmm. and you know, how are you approaching this you know pretty monumental you 
know, project to, to actually craft this biography? Like, what's your mindset? What's your philosophy of biographical writing? Oh, God, that's a scary question. Well, I guess the reason, there are several reasons that I guess become sharper and more intensely felt by me while I'm writing the essay, depending on which aspect of it I'm working on at a given moment. So the first the first thing is just that such a significant artist deserves a biography. And so I guess that is fulfilling a kind of expectation that I have that anybody who has contributed as much as he has to our understanding of what is artistically and creatively possible deserves uh, the respect of having a, a book length worth work dedicated to his life. Um, so I think that that's, that's one answer to the question. Another more complicated answer is that the more I, so I, you could have that, I could have that answer to the question just by being familiar with his paintings. Right? And, you know, every major modern art museum in the world, like all the ones you've heard, all the ones you you will have heard of, have Soutines in their collection. So I don't need to know about any of the scholarship on Soutine. I could just like be visiting those museums and and I've had people say this to me, like, oh my God, it's so weird that Soutine doesn't have a biography. I mean, I've I've seen Soutines. Um, and you know, people kind of expect that if they've seen a a painting in a museum, that like whoever painted it would have a book about them written. So that's one reason. The other, another reason is that a lot that is said about Soutine isn't true or doesn't treat him with the artistic respect that I think he deserves. So this is a much more personal reason. Um, and I, I can kind of explain what I mean by that because I guess it's not intuitive. Um, a lot of the writing about Soutine describes him as this kind of really emotional, tormented Jew whose paintings are an expression of deep psychological pain. Now, I think that that is probably, I don't know if it's an accurate description of the paintings, because I think it's really difficult to know how an artist feels unless they actually explicitly put it in writing. There are artists that do this. Um, you know, Monk is an example of a painter who makes it very clear that he is trying to convey particular agitation or particular psychological states. Soutine didn't do that at all. He never, we don't have any of his writings about his paintings. He didn't write anything about his paintings that we know of. Um, and he didn't tell people like, this is what I'm trying to communicate. So very frequently, Soutine is put in a category with German expressionists who are trying to um, communicate a kind of agitation or anxiety. And I just think that that's not an accurate, it's not a, it's not a helpful way to think about Soutine's work. Um, partly because he, he wasn't a German expressionist. He'd never gone to Germany. There's no evidence that, that German artistic tradition really influenced him. Whereas there is incredible incontrovertible evidence that the French artistic tradition was of immense importance to Soutine. I mean, not disputed by anybody, even the people who say, even the people who say that he was a German expressionist. Um, and kind of what people mean when they say that, I think, is that his paintings are more emotional than they are cerebral. Uh, and he didn't really care about form. He didn't really care about um, being careful with composition and with color. He was just trying to, it's a kind of emotional catharsis. Um, 
And I think that that's not giving the paintings their due. So I, I want to like correct the record on that. Yeah. And, and I think that moves us you know, to how you, how you title the salon as well, you know, trying to excavate the, the man from the myth. And so I think the, the starting point into, into that topic is just why are all of these misconceptions and stereotypes of Soutine floating around? Is it just critics and audiences trying to read kind of the most simple explanation of uh, the artwork? Is it just how they're interpreting it as a surface level? Um, you know, how, how would you say you know, these, these things kind of arise? Mm, it's a really good question. It's a question I have to ask myself a lot because, you know, if enough smart people say a thing that you disagree with, you should start to scratch your head and ask yourself why they keep saying it. Um, so I think there are a couple, there are a couple different answers that I, I'm not saying like any of them could be true. I think they're all true and they all sort of exercise influence over the cultural imagination in different ways. Um, one of the, one important thing to point out is that, so scholars typically divide Soutines over into different periods. And the first period, it's called the Saray period because he painted most of the paintings from that period in a place called Saray. Um, it was from like 1918 to 1922, something like that. And those paintings, so like he he did paint before that, but this was the first major period. Those paintings are incredibly difficult paintings. They're very dark. Um, they're like messy is like one way to describe them. Um, like asphyxiating. They look like they don't have oxygen in them. And they're they're difficult works. Soutine didn't like them. Um, in fact, I mean, when he painted them, he did. But when he became wealthy after, after that period, he would spend his money buying those paintings back so that he could literally burn them or shred them or like literally he poured gasoline on them and burned them to be like burn them up into ash because he didn't like them and didn't want to be known by them. So that period that period ended in 1922. In 1923, a man named Albert Barnes, who was an art collector from Philadelphia, bought 52 of Soutine's paintings, and that that changed Soutine's life forever. The fact that Barnes bought those 52 paintings, like all of a sudden, he was no longer an impoverished, you know, this starving Jewish artist in Paris, like many of his friends had been. Um, that that vaunted him into like the definitely into the national significance in Paris sphere. Um, it would be like a stepping stone to international significance. His life was never the same after that. And it was the Saray paintings that did that. And it was this, like, the there are two huge collections of Soutines in the world. One is at the Musée de Lingerie in Paris that has 22 paintings. The other is the Barnes Museum in Philadelphia, which has 21. All of the paintings in Philadelphia that Barnes took to America were from the Saray period. So definitely in America, Soutine is thought of primarily like through Saray. That's how they know him. So even though it was his earliest work and it was work that he later wanted to destroy, did not want to be known by, it's really what allowed, it, it's how the Americans were first introduced to him. So that's one reason why people usually describe him as if all they've seen is the Saray works. Because I think in some cases that is all they've seen. Um, so that's one answer. Another answer is that 
there are people who describe Soutine as sort of like the archetypal Jewish artist. And of course, anxiety is considered like the archetypal Jewish feeling or expression. It's like there's something like particularly Jewish about anxiety. Obviously, like during the 20th century, when you know, Soutine was born in Smilovici, which was, it's in present day Belarus, but it was Russia when he was born. And he was, he came to Paris with many other Jews because there were pogroms throughout Russia. So they were being killed by the Russians and then they came to Paris and then there was World War One, And then of course there was like a brief period of respite and then there was World War Two. So a lot of Jews being killed. Um, and I think that people sort of graft onto Soutine all of that kind of Jewish pain and anxiety and say that this is what is essential about him. Now, there is no evidence at all that Soutine was trying to express something that was essentially Jewish. That's not true of Chagall. We know that Chagall was trying to be essentially, he was trying to create a kind of Jewish art. Um, that's also true of like, you know, Manet Katz. There are other, there are other Jewish painters in Paris who were trying to paint Jewish paintings, but there's there's nothing in Soutine that's explicitly Jewish. Um, and yet I think, I don't think that this is like something that only Jews do. I think that lots of minority groups will see somebody who's like a member of the community that they recognize as their own. And then will try and say like, oh, this is, they're, they're representing me. Um, and I just think that like, it's just either it's completely untrue or at least it's not, it's like, it's not essential to Soutine's to understanding who he was and what he was trying to do as an artist. Do you think that there's something I think quite maybe fundamentally flawed or I, I won't go as far as incorrect about how a lot of people read art, which is to really search for the artist in the art or to try and search for identity and symbols and expressions of an era or peoples in, in artists to to try and um yeah like you said graph and an, a piece of art to do something that they recognize and want to resonate with rather than to start from the artist you know as an individual as a as a single person with all of their complexity nuances and contradictions do you do you think that's um, like a pretty widespread problem. And if so, is it you know just around you know education awareness, how museums are are marketing you know artists? Um, you know, should should uh, people just read more you know biographies of artists um, rather than just you know read the little labels you know next to the artworks? This is a great question. This is a question that I struggle with a lot, and it's one of the reasons that I'm really excited for the salon on Sunday because I think that. Um, I tend to say, yes, there's there's a huge problem with doing this, but I also think that I probably err too much in the other direction. Um, I probably I think that, and I think ultimately it it really depends on the artist. Some artists are doing the thing that everybody says that they're doing, and some artists aren't, but or aren't doing it on purpose. But it actually is a, a useful way to look at the paintings. I know because I'm also a painter, that is, that can be really, really useful and kind of like um, a tool in my arsenal. When I'm looking at a Soutine painting, I feel like I have a privileged understanding of it because I also paint. Um, Asti Danau, who is like the 
she authenticates Soutine's paintings for auction houses. So she is like the expert, the living expert on Soutine's painting in the world. Um, and she said to she said to me that she thinks it's impossible for non-artists to understand Soutine. So and and like everything she says and everything she writes. I think is like genius. I mean, I'm so validated by my understanding of Soutine because it's, it's basically what she says and she, she really, really knows him. At least she knows his paintings very, very well. Um, So I've thought about what she said. I I think about that, that sentiment a lot, but it recently occurred to me that whereas it's true that a painter can understand Soutine in a way that non-painters can't, non-painters can understand Soutine in a way that painters can't. So um, I'll give you an example of what I mean by this. Like this occurred to me, this actually just occurred to me. I just got back from Paris like two weeks ago. I was on a research trip in Paris and I was at the Orsay, which is the greatest museum in the world. And um, I was standing like in the room with Manet's Olympia, you know, communing. And there was like a group of museum goers who were being led around by a tour guide. And the tour guide asked, this is like a group of students. They were they were teenagers. She asked them to look at the painting and tell them what they tell her what they saw. And one of the students said kind of timidly, it's a naked woman. Now, I would never notice that. I mean, obviously I know that, but that's never what I would think when I would look at a painting. I think, look at those brush strokes, look at the way he has his the light hitting her body. Um, look how he's created her face without any kind of like structuring to it, which is like always what, what astounds me about Manet and the way that he paints is like he's able to he, he's able to make faces that are modeled, but they're they see it seems as if he hasn't modeled them at all. He doesn't have any kind of underdrawing the way that you know, somebody like Van Gogh is the opposite of that. So I look at a painting and all I think about is how did the painter do this? I don't think about the obvious thing, which is what is this a painting of? Um, so that's a huge handicap. If you're like, if you can look at a painting and not ask the obvious question or not be moved in the obvious way, then you can say a lot of things about the work, but you can't, you can't recognize certain like other obvious things about the work. So I think in this way, um, I I never think about Soutine. Oh my gosh, they look so anxious. These people look so anxious. That's not what I think. Um, I, I think it's possible that it's not what Soutine thought either, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I understand him or I understand the work better than somebody else because as we all know, a painter or any artist puts into their work a lot more than they mean to. So if, if somebody is... Um, deeply agitated and they write a story about, you know, a young boy, for example, um, and it comes across that this this agitation runs like an undercurrent throughout the story, um, it might be true to say, wow, this boy is so beautifully captured, or like the expression of youth is so beautifully captured in this story. But you would be missing something essential if you didn't also say, yeah, and there's something really dark about this story. Um, so that's the kind of thing I mean. Like, I think that on the one hand, it might be true that, um, you know, Soutine, Soutine died in, in like, in hiding in 1943, hiding from the Nazis. When I look at his late work, I'm not thinking about how unhappy he must have been. I'm thinking about the color of the trees he painted. 
Um, and somebody did say to me recently, like, do you really think that he, he wasn't affected at all by the anxieties that eventually led to his death? So, you know, I think that as a writer, at least, I have to be able to turn off and on those considerations. I need to be able to look at him from both vantage points. Yeah, so I think that makes, totally. That, that makes a lot of sense. I, I think it gets to the the question around subjectivity and objectivity of art, so that you know every every person who encounters the art has a subjective experience of it, and that's obviously in, impacted by how much they know about it, how much they know about painting, for example. Um, but you know, as a writer, as a biographer, obviously you're you're handicapped by what's objectively available. But but even if, for example, you know, someone who only knows the stereotyped version of Soutine, if that helps build for them a really powerful subjective representation and, and meaning from, from the painting, I mean that's a that's a real reaction, even if it's based off of objectively false or misleading information. Um, like what's your feeling around that dynamic because i'm i'm sure it's exists all over the place for every writer and artist out there um and as you know people who who care about the truth and care about you know correct historical context that might be painful but you know i think for a lot of people you can individually you can say that actually did help them make meaning out of maybe a, a very difficult work and actually, you know, help them experience something that is very new and powerful. So is, is that, you know, is that a necessary trade-off? Do you kind of just reject that premise? <laughs> I try really hard not to, but um, probably not hard enough. No, like the thing that you're describing, uh, yes, that's a, the source of immense frustration to me. I'll give you a really good um, almost like embarrassing example of the kind of thing that I think you mean. Um, Elie Wiesel, who is, of course, a famous, um, he's a survivor of the Holocaust and probably one of the greatest contributors to our understanding of what the Holocaust meant for survivors of it and how to conceive of it um, and it, how to put it in, in, in a place in our cultural imagination and psyche. He was asked to contribute an essay to a catalog that would accompany a Soutine exhibition, I think it was in Spain. Now, the reason that he, like, first of all, the only reason that Elie Wiesel would be asked to contribute an essay is because they were trying to build Soutine as the archetypal anxious Jew, right? So it's not like Elie, Elie Wiesel was a great art historian or art critic. I mean, that was not... That's not why they were asking him to do this. Um, in that essay, so I should say, one of Soutine's most famous series, he did he did a series of paintings that were of um, a, a beef carcass after a painting by Rembrandt. So he painted he painted a couple of paintings that were after other famous painters, Rembrandt and I think Chardin and Courbet. I think those were the three. Um, and this was one of two that he did after Rembrandt. So the way that Soutine would do this is like he would, he wouldn't paint the painting. He went out and bought a beef carcass. And this is just a, a cool story. Soutine, Soutine always painted from life. He never painted photographs. He never copied 
paintings the way that other people would do like you can sometimes if you visit a museum you see an artist painting with an easel sometimes they let them do that um he would never do that he would always if he wanted to paint a painting after another artist what he would do is like go and purchase the thing that they got like so he went to a butcher shop he bought this beef carcass he hung it up and he painted it for so long that the blood started to to um fade out of it so he went and bought blood and like splashed it onto the carcass neighbors complained because of the smell he had to like shoot it with formaldehyde to get it to stop smelling this is kind of like this is how he was insane he really was crazy in this way um okay ellie wiesel said of that painting that painting is supposed to be a representation of the jew in the 20th century this like dripping bloody beef carcass now like that is so not what soutine was doing i mean that's like not at all um but that's what ellie wiesel saw in it ellie wiesel who survived the holocaust like who is celeste marcus to say that he's wrong except that he's wrong so you know do i think that he had a genuinely um a genuine experience standing in front of that painting and looking at it i'm sure he did does it matter to me that it's just the wrong characterization of a soutine painting of course it does um, and both of these things can be true at the same time. You know, this will tell me more about Elie Wiesel than it tells me about Soutine. It doesn't mean that it tells me nothing at all. Um, and I think this is true of like the way that a lot of people look at Soutine. It doesn't mean that their response is wrong. Their response is genuine. Their understanding of Soutine is wrong. Um, you know, as um, a student of Elie Wiesel or as the friend of a friend who goes and has an authentic experience looking at a Soutine and misunderstanding it, like my job in those situations is not to tell them, no, you completely misunderstood this thing. But as Soutine's biographer, it has to matter to me. And I have to be able to say um, the thing that is important about, you know, this series of paintings is that he was learning from Rembrandt here, or like these were the choices that he made when he was doing this painting, or this is the place where he was in his career when he was doing this painting, um, you know. So does that does that answer your question? Yeah, I, I think that that adds an additional layer of, of nuance that I feel like um, can be much more explicit and, and present in terms of discourse around art, which is that genuine experiences that doesn't negate or doesn't it doesn't have to negate kind of historical inaccuracies and like historical fact doesn't have to negate an authentic experience with a piece of artwork based off of you know, misconceptions. But I think that's that's part of the yeah. you know, contradictions that can can exist. Um, I think that's art. right. I mean, I think how about this? Like, it's true that Soutine painted in an extreme way, and it's true that Elie Wiesel's experience as a Jew in the 20th century were extreme experiences. And in that sense, he was right that there was some kind of, um, you know, there was, there was something, um, there was a kind of symmetry between these two things. I don't think that he articulated it accurately. And so it's important to, to get that right. Um, but he's but he's he's definitely he's he's moved by something that is actually there in the way that we are often moved by our without understanding why yeah i i think that's definitely something that i think more um more of a strand 
um, in terms of you know romantic and post-romantic art, in which it, it becomes much more about personal expression. You, know, you move from classical paintings, which are often uh, commissioned by court or, or royalty uh, for a specific purpose to around individual expression. And I think that's what drives a lot of critics and audiences to try and psychologize and mm. read into um, artists' intentions and where they were at, like, you know, mentally and what they were doing um, in their lives during this. Um, so do, do you feel like that's a, that's a fair way of approaching art just generally, you know, romantic, you know, modern, contemporary art? I think that, you know, with both of these, like, consider the dichotomy that you just presented. Um, somebody who is like a, somebody who is paid, like commission paint, a commission painter, like, or somebody who's paid by the court or something, somebody who is like, has a position to create sort of work for the government. Um, like, I don't know, say Caravaggio or somebody like that. Um, so on the one hand, like, not any kind of obvious personal expression in the paintings, at least not explicitly articulated. Now consider a contemporary painter who is, say that they're painting, like explicitly they say this in the service of a particular political agenda. Now, for both for both of these different archetypes, the, the stated purpose of the work is not related to the quality of the art that doesn't mean that the quality of the art is not very high sometimes it can be accidentally i mean caravaggio was a great example um of somebody who was like commissioned to paint pieces by you know royalty that he wasn't supposed to be like putting himself into it except that he couldn't help doing that because he was a great painter and i think this is also true of certain painters or writers who are who are creating propaganda i mean if that's their that's their explicit intent but if they're great enough artists accidentally the thing that like an art critic or like a, a, some, an ingester of the art will take most seriously is not the stated purpose of it but the quality of it um and then that matters i mean to me it matters more it actually is possible to create really great work even if the the greatness or the personal expression is not um the purported intent of the work does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I was actually you know, trying to ask maybe almost the opposite of that, which is oh, can, can you have you know, artists in in the romantic and modern era in which I mean they're they're just trying to do cool shit. <laughs> um, <laughs> and actually people assume that there's some personal expression and some deep meaning to it, but maybe they're just, you know, like like Soutine, they're just trying he's just trying to you know, perfect his craft uh, based off of Ram a Rembrandt's okay. example. Or, I mean, I, I can't really think of too many other examples off of the top of my head. I think there are lots of examples in mm. in music, for example, when where where composers are just experimenting with with different, um, no no different techniques, or they just have they're writing you know, amazing stuff, but it was really just because they were running out of money and they just. <laughs> happen to get this commission and, and so do you feel like um because of our expectation of the the primacy of this kind of authentic self-expression uh, for art that we're actually primed to just overread 
uh, intention and kind of personal baggage into artworks. I okay, so I guess here's the, here's a distinction that I want to make. There's the personal baggage aspect, or the let's I guess in in like contemporary politics we can call it like the identity politics aspect, um, which is it's kind of programmatic. Um, it's it's scripted. I guess programmatic is that'll serve that'll serve. And then there is something else that I think this is what I'm referring to as personal expression, but I don't mean it in like the identity politics way. I mean, what I mean is like pouring your soul into something. I think that that can be, first of all, it can never be programmatic. It can never be um, adhering to a certain script. I think it can come in any context. It can come because you're creating a work because you suddenly got a commission and you really need the money. If you're a good enough artist, it should it should come through no matter what the conditions are. And that is the real self. I mean, one of the things that I love about Soutine is that even though his paintings, it would it would feel like a kind of mediation or a, a distance if he was like expressing himself as a Jew and not just like as himself. Every painting that I see seems to me to be of his. And I think this is like, this is the reason I love Soutine and this is the reason that I'm writing this biography. Every painting that I see of his, when I stand in front of it, it seems to me like he just cut himself open and is showing me like his insides. This is just absolutely himself, unmediated, not bending to anybody else's conception of what a painting should look like. It's brilliant. Um, and I, what I mean by that is like the compositions at their best are very complicated. His use of paint is just absolutely genius. I don't think anybody else has ever used paint the way that he does. Um, it is complex and it's confusing to me that he was able to make the the colors do what he was able to make them do um the rhythms inside the paintings are incredibly intricate and yet like do not they're not messy and i don't know how he did that um but it's just fascinating to me that he is able to have this kind of overflow into every work that he's not every work because i think that there are some weak ones it's hard for me to admit that, but I feel like I have to. But at his best, and for most of them, it just feels like being, it feels like being caught up into like the tor the torrent of somebody else's soul. And that is not about politics or, it's about nothing except him. Um, and that is incredibly moving to me. And I think that that's possible, like any artist at their best, no matter when they were painting, no matter who's paying for it, if they reach a certain level of artistic excellence, their work will be like that. Yeah, I, I think I, I personally agree with that, um, that that great art will make itself known. And, but But obviously, whether it's a museum exhibit or even what you're writing with the book it, it's it's clear that kind of the the historical context and the the facts of the persons of the artist still matters in in some ways so so how does that how do these pieces ultimately kind of fit together then if great art can stand by itself and reveal the artist the, the kind of the authentic kind of deeply personal artist if the art speaks for itself, then what? Where, Watch, where there does, be a biography? <laughs> yeah, what is a biography for then? So, I will say that I I don't think that the biography is any kind of substitute for the work at all, and I'm not trying to have it be. I wouldn't I wouldn't 
want that responsibility. It's not how I conceive of it. Um, I think that understanding, um, understanding the life of an artist is not the same as understanding their work. And so I'll give you an example that is kind of a, a North Star for me while I'm writing the biography. One of the writers who is most important to me is Emerson. Reading's Emerson, reading Emerson's essays is like, it's the closest I ever get to prayer. And it's incredibly spiritually significant to me. Richardson's biography of Emerson paints a portrait of a man who is not at all like the man that Emerson presents himself to be in his essays. He's a very different person in reality as, as he existed alongside other people than as he was trying to convey in the essays that he was writing. It doesn't help me understand those essays better to know, you know, for example, like he wrote in, in his essay circles, he writes about the death of his son and if you read that, if you read just the essay, you will be incredibly moved and startled by the fact that he seemed not terribly upset by it. Um, it's like, it's a little disturbing. But if you read the biography, you know that he was incredibly disturbed by it and that he he loved his family and his son enormously and in the and you begin to understand that like in the essays he was he was trying to convey himself as if he was not incredibly attached to the people around him and actually he was doing that on purpose because he thought you discover in the biography he thought that he was too attached to other people and he like he actually was an incredibly devoted friend and father and like they're not the same person um so I don't feel like my responsibility in the Sutine biography is to explain to readers how great the paintings are or why they're great. They have to go and look at them. And I'll say that. Um, but what I do want to understand is the life of this artist. And the reason that I want to understand that is because of how great an artist he was. I think he deserves to be understood. Um, so I'm not going to explain what the paintings are, but I am going to explain what they're not. Um, and also the life that he lived was incredibly significant and he lived at a time, you know, Paris in the 20th century is like one of, one of the greatest stories of human history. So it's just kind of fun to talk about it. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, to, to close off, I mean, um, what, why are you hoping to, to get out of a conversation, um, you know, from the salon where some of the, the questions that you would love, um, salon goers to to ask that I haven't asked for <laughs> um I guess that there are a couple of different things that I'm hoping for one is like I hope that people come who love Soutine and want to talk to me about why they love him because I am the person I know who loves Soutine the most and that's a kind of a lonely place to be if I'm spending all of my time writing about him I know that there are people who love him and I hope that they come to the salon and, and want to talk about it um the other thing that I hope I get to talk about with people is like, like, I really do have this question. Does it matter that people don't understand him? Does that really matter? I mean, in my mind, like part of me viscerally says, yes, it matters. Of course it matters. But I can't really explain why to myself. And sometimes I go back and forth about it. Um, so I hope that people will tell me stories about other artists that they love or writers 
um, or, you know, directors or any, any, any artist who has like been significant for a person, um, does it matter that they know them as human beings? Uh, I want to know about biographies that people have read that were really significant to them and why they were significant to them. Um, and I want to know if people don't want to read a biography and why not, you know, these kinds of things, because these are the questions that are in my head all the time. And I really want to be able to talk about them with other people. So I'm very, very excited to have the opportunity to do that. Yeah, those are really great. Um, and once again, um, Celeste, your um, upcoming salon on Soutine um, is coming up on December 11th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Um, you can get your tickets through the link in the show notes below. Uh, it's been a pleasure having this conversation. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for